0: Well, we do thank you, and uh, 20 years is a long time. The, uh, um, I haven't been here 20 years. I've been here 18, so the church was started before I came. And I do want to acknowledge uh, Gary and Mary, would you all stand? Dave and Carol, would you all mind standing? And where's Paulette? Is she hiding? Hey, Paulette, come on in here and show yourself. All right. These are the these are part of the only m- members of the core group that remain at Christ the King. I managed to run everybody else off. So, but <laughs> thank you all. You can sit, Thank you. They they were part of that original group, and uh, so I have to say that uh, the, this, the success of Christ the King is because of her people. That includes all of you that are here now and those we have had many, many faithful attenders who have moved or uh, they've been assigned to other places and so on. And so we've lost many people over the years, but uh, we're grateful for all of them and especially your elders and deacons. They have been uh, truly remarkable uh, and have stood uh, the test of time. So thank you, brothers, uh, for being here and to Paulette and her family uh, for their help. We're going to start today a series, and I'll probably continue this for the rest of the year, in the book of Romans. Uh, uh, Dawson and I are going to uh, trade off from time to time, and so he'll be doing some other things, and I'll, but I'm going to stay in Romans uh, as long as uh, uh, I can until I get to the end. Um, the book of Romans is notoriously difficult to uh, uh, outline. And it's hard to see. The Apostle Paul is making lots of arguments and going in a lot of different directions. Uh, So I'm going to try to sort through it and and bring you uh, the important aspects. Not that any of it is not important, but really the thrust, the direction in which the Apostle is taking us. Uh, So if you have your bulletin, you'll find the translation I chose for this morning's reading, uh, the New Living Translation. Uh, Some of... Some people don't like this translation because it's really uh, not a translation, it's a paraphrase. But I thought we would use this, and, and please know that that this is just for reading and for comprehension. Uh, to study the text you need to use probably a little bit more literal translation, but so many of us have read the book of Romans in everything from the King James Version to the, n- the New ESV and all these others that it... Uh, you can get too used to hearing it. This is fresh and it's simple and uh, it communicates uh, the book very well. So hear the word of God as I read it to you. It's in your bulletin. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through the prophets in the Holy Scripture. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey Him, bringing glory to His name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be His holy people. May our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let me say first that I thank my God... Through, Christ, G, through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith in him is talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night, I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I served with all my heart by spreading the good news about his Son. One of the things I always pray is for the opportunity, God willing, To come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith. And I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you. But I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I have seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world and to the educated and uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome too to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, The book of Romans is indeed a famous book. In the New Testament, there's probably not another one that's uh, as famous. This book has changed the lives of many people. I'm sure you know uh, St. Augustine was uh, uh, converted to Christianity uh, through reading passages in the book of uh, Romans. Luther, Martin Luther as well, John Calvin, John Wesley, and in our own time, in our day, people like R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson, Martin Loth-Jones, you can just name any host of modern-day scholars whose lives have been transformed. Uh, Jim, Jim and I uh, had the privilege of studying under R.C. at, at uh, Reform Seminary, and I remember R.C. being asked that if he was on, stranded on a desert island, what book from the Bible would he want to take with him? And uh, do you remember which one it was, Jim? The book of Hebrews. And so everybody said, I mean, gosh, you know, wouldn't you like the book of Romans? And R.C. said, why would I take the book of Romans? I have it already memorized. <laughs> and he wasn't whistling Dixie, was he? I mean, these guys, we met some guys that had, they were incredible. And R.C. Had a, had a photographic memory our Protestant faith also largely rests upon the teachings in the book of Romans and certainly among people in reform circles, so we can't overstate the importance uh, of this letter. One commentator, Doug Moo, this is a, a, a commentator that both Dawson and I really like, uh, he said this, If we are to identify a single theme for the letter, it must be the gospel. In our translation, we read good news, good news, but every one of those four times he mentions it in those opening verses, he's talking about the gospel, euangelion, the good news. If we are to identify a single theme for the letter, it must be the gospel the word is prominent in both the introduction these are the first few verses we just read and the conclusion which is actually in chapter 15 chapter 16 is all just his farewells and greetings and so on it has pride of place in what is usually identified as the statement of the letter's theme so you have this this general theme of the gospel but you also have this this idea that the gospel communicates to us, which is verse 16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Salvation for everyone. Very interesting phrase. What he means is it's for every kind of person in the world. The Jews had two kinds of people in the world. Jews and Gentiles it was nothing else it was just those two children of God children of the serpent that's all it was and that was the paradigm the pattern that they followed and so for Jesus to come and open the door to the Gentiles as he did on numerous occasions if you've read the Gospels in the New Testament was revolutionary most of us here are here today are Gentiles uh, you, can't, you can't get around the fact that this was earth shattering. It had been promised in the Old Testament, but with the coming of Christ, now the door was flung open to all kinds of people rich and poor, barbarians, free, men and women, every race, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Truly a revolution. There's a famous inscription, and I've shared this with you, I think, in years past, but there's a famous inscription that was discovered called the Prien calendar. It was found on a, on a, a slab uh, in Prien in, in, in Turkey, and it dates back to 9 BC. This is before the birth of Jesus. And listen to what it says. It's translated here in English, but it was written in Greek. The beginning of the gospel, the Evangelion of Caesar Augustus. Since providence, here's, here's the gospel according to Caesar Augustus. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our lives, has set the most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom providence filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind by sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipation, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, the gospel for the world that came by reason of Him. Now you contrast that with your Bible, with what was written about our Savior. A nobody from nowhere born in a manger with nothing to commend Him you have the history thousands of years predating jesus and now to this day where people have come and gone great leaders great augustus was a great leader he brought the pax romana the peace of rome to the world and we serve a common laborer He's called carpenter is the word technos it means just a laborer he was just a laborer stood on the corners with his dad and his Brothers and waited for a pickup, a junkie pickup, to come by and pick them up to take them to go haul trash or build a rock wall or whatever needed to be done. But there's more to this gospel. And the Apostle Paul knows, as you see in that world, the gospel meant something. It meant an arrival, an announcement that someone had come who was great. And we proclaim that greatness to this day. They proclaimed it back then and that's why the Apostle Paul is so anxious to go to Rome where he had not been yet and to preach the gospel. He had been all over Asia and Greece and hadn't gone into the far reaches of Eastern Asia but he really wanted to go to Spain. Rome was on his road there so he said, I want to come to Rome and I want to share with you the gospel. So let's talk about what is the gospel. We'll keep it short today. But uh, the first thing I want to share with you is the continuity that the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to his audience and something that you and I need to be, have always in front of us, this continuity that there is not Old Testament and then a break and then New Testament. If you do that, you're going to misunderstand the majority of your Bible. If you don't see the linkage between the old and the new, then most of your Bible just goes away. I mean, the New Testament. Richard Pratt told us, "Why do Why do you all even bother learning Greek?" He said, "You should memorize your New Testament in Greek. It's so short. Look, I mean, it's just this little. This is the rest of the Bible. This is the Greek part. And that, in fact, it's not even that much. It's that much. Little bitty. To, just Just learn it. Just Memorize it because it's really nothing. What you really need is the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is, is the foundation upon which Jesus came and stood, planted his feet, and said, I am the connection between the old and the new. Me, the gospel, was preached to Adam and Eve in the garden it reaches back to verse 15 of chapter 3 in Genesis when God promised in what is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, I will cause hostility between your seed and his seed, the woman and the serpent. He, the seed of the woman, he will strike your head you, serpent, will strike his heel. So in that gospel, there would be an exchange made between the seed of the woman and the serpent. The seed of the woman would deal a death blow the head of the serpent. He would crush the head. But in so doing, he himself would take an affliction, a wound to his heel. And if those of you that have lived here, you know that when a snake bites you, where does it get you? It gets you in the leg and you can die from that. So there was an exchange made. And this proto-euangelion is right here in the beginning of our Bible. And Jesus is the link between the two the continuity look in your in your notes or in your bible at verses 2 through 4 real quickly god promised good news long ago through the prophets and the holy scriptures so paul is reaching back into that soil of the old testament and he's saying what i'm going what i'm about to tell you is nothing new it's been around from day 1 genesis 3 and this is the continuity it's not a teaching it's a person but that person his identity who he is has consequences to the rest of the story it's almost like Jesus just swept back and scooped up everything that was ever written in the old testament and just brought it all into himself like this I mean what amazing look the Apostle Paul said, God promised the good news long ago through the prophets in the Holy Scripture. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, David's son, a royal king. In his heavenly existence, he was declared the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. So you're seeing that everything written came to fruition in his life, in his death, in his resurrection in His person, who He is, and His work. He pulled everything together. So the gospel in the Old Testament... The gospel described God's final victory. People were waiting for this great king, this son of David, this, this son of God. They didn't understand all the things like we do, but they were expecting him to come. And when he came, they got excited. and They said, you know, he's going to overthrow all of our enemies and he's going to bring in the kingdom. And Jesus did it. He went through and he conquered every enemy of his father. Death, hell, the grave, leprosy, blindness, crippledness. He fed them with, with just a couple of loaves. He could, he, he could feed multitudes with just his word. He, he was powerful. He, he stood for the oppressed and he put down the religious and the, and the troublesome Pharisees and Sadducees. And these. He did everything that the great king was supposed to do. And then he died. And everybody's lives were shattered. Especially those that had followed him for three days. They invested all this time and look what he did. What is going on? Look folks, if the resurrection is not true, and the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about the resurrection in this book and elsewhere. If the resurrection is not true, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we in this room are of all people most to be pitied and miserable because we put our hopes in nothing. On the other hand, if the resurrection is true, then you and I have nothing to fear, not even death. Can we hear an amen for that one? Yeah. Nothing. No politics. No dangerous criminals. No world powers. No mark of the beast. Nothing. We have nothing to fear. That doesn't mean that you're not to be as wise as a serpent. And as harmless as a dove. But what it does mean is it should reorient us as it did the Apostle Paul and as he hoped to to communicate to Rome a reorientation of what is down here in the inside of us. What is inside of us? What is our core? Is it the person and work of Jesus Christ or is it something else? This is idolatry. This is syncretism. This is poison for anything other than Jesus to be central. Not one, two, three, and some kind of a a crazy list. God's first, and then my family, and then my church, and then my job. No, there's no one, two, three. Nothing. There's one. And everything else orbits around Him. Job, work, family. He doesn't ask us to put in it. He doesn't want anything present in your life. Nothing could possibly be above him. So he says, Don't bring it in my presence. Trust me. And the Apostle Paul, his whole life was lit on fire. By that idea that the King has come, we're to announce and proclaim His greatness and His glory, and nothing is to be feared, and everywhere we go, we can touch, and it will become life because He's the life and the light of the world. Glorious. And how does this happen? A new identity. We see who Jesus is, and in theology we call it uh, his person and his work. That sort of encapsulates everything he is. His person, who he is, his works, what he has done. And so, he has this identity. Messiah, King, Lord, Christ, Son of David, Son of God, on and on and on. You can line them up. Fantastic. But what about us? we also have a new identity. And this is something the Apostle Paul excels at in his writing. This you find in verse 1. Look at it. Paul, a slave and an apostle. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about in Peter he calls us the church, the elect exiles. He he puts two opposite things together. Things that should grind against one another. Elect? Yeah, we're elect. I mean, look at me. I've got a robe on. You better believe I'm elect. But in exile? How do you put those two things together? He do- Peter did it. Paul's doing it right here. Look. A slave, doulos, the lowest of the lowest of slaves, the lowest, and apostle, highest. He, he puts them together without even the blink of an eye, folks. This is how secure this man is in who he was, in Jesus. He just slaps together two things we would hardly ever think of putting together. That's me. Slave and apostle. Set apart for the gospel. Do you see what he did? Here's who I am and here's what I do. I'm a slave, but I'm an apostle. And in both capacities, I'm set apart for the gospel. And so are you, and so am I, and so was everyone in Rome. Paul had just, he had this special office that he went and he did, and you have special office. I don't know where all of you work, but wherever you work, live, and, pray, and play, as Randy Pope says, that's where you are uniquely called to proclaim the gospel with your life, with your words, with your kindness, with your... As Dawson said, we should be gentle and humble. A slave and an apostle. How amazing is that? And it touches... In these first few verses, I mean, you gotta... The the apostle Paul's a genius. Look at what he does in 5 through 7. He says, not only me... But also you, he doesn't let anybody off the hook. Okay, we'll just send uh, Chuck and Dawson off to visit people in the hospital. We hire them to do our spiritual stuff, and uh, we're going to stay over here and do our whatever stuff. And when we need something religious, we'll call the guys in the robes. Just so you know, we don't wear these when we go to the hospital. (laughs) Although, it might open some doors. Maybe we should. All right, all right. So it affects us. Look at five through seven including you, he says. You is plural in Greek. It's y'all in Texas. Called to belong. Listen to this. A new status. A new uh, standing before God. A new identity. a, a, A new relationship. All of these things new. And look how he describes the people in Rome and by extension those of us here in this room today I, it, it boggles a mind. I could hardly get through it. I was just sitting there looking. I'm, I've bitten off more than I can chew. I should never have taught the book of Romans. And then I just dug right back in because it's too good you know, to pass it up. Listen to how he describes us. You are called to belong to Jesus. You don't belong to yourself. You don't own yourself. Your identity is not in a nation and we want to be, you know, patriotic. That's all great. But ultimately, that's a sidebar. The real you. You belong to Jesus. Body and soul. Every molecule. Not one bit of you will ever disappear. He owns you. And He loves you. Look what He says. Called to belong to Jesus. In Rome, all of you in Rome are loved. Called to be saints through Jesus listen to what he says we have received grace and apostleship apostleship there is it that applies to all of us messengers of the gospel obedience this i love this phrase Capture it. Put it in your mind. Obedience grounded in faith. In other words, when you obey Jesus, it's no longer because you think you've got to get something from Him, acquire some merit, be a good person so He can let you into heaven. No, your obedience is grounded in faith in Jesus Christ. That, your identity, being beloved by Him, And trusting Him, knowing that nothing to fear is the motive for our obedience. It becomes the driving force of your life in everything, everywhere. And He goes on for His name, for His glory. You see, He's pointing us to the reality, folks, that whatever was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the kiwi. See, I think it's a kiwi because they just look like they're evil. <laughs> Until you cut into them, then they're not too bad. But I mean, really, from the outside, yikes, that's the forbidden fruit. <laughs> Paul is steering us back saying, you know, and he's going to talk about it in the rest of the letter, what we lost in Adam, we gain in Jesus. And what we get back in Jesus way better than what Adam had. It was beyond anything anyone could possibly comprehend. But beyond. For His name. You see, whatever glory was lost to us, folks, the Imago Dei was stained and corrupted and polluted, and, but not lost. Whatever was lost, He's going re, to restore that little bit now, all of it later. And we're truly going to be what He meant us to be. And the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the the heartache, the sickness, the disease, the terror of this life. It's not going to go away. It's going to be a memory because it's going to be the basis for our praise in the future. We're going to be able to look at our robes they will be white, and then lift our eyes and look at his robe. And his robe is stained with blood. So, in eternity, you're going to see your robes white, his robe stained in blood. You're going to see the prints of the nails in his hands. You're going to know what you did in your life, but what he did in his. And it's going to give birth. To praise and glory. There are going to be bagpipes everywhere. People are going to be screaming and yelling. The Presbyterians are going to be in another room somewhere by themselves going like this. And you know, it's going to be glorious. Think of it. The glory and the joy, not of an erased memory, but a redeemed memory. A life transformation and this is what Paul does and I can't really take a lot of time with this but in 8 through 15 this is what happened here's a man that everyone had heard you see the rumor about Paul had gone to the ends of the earth that he was a persecutor and a murderer and a jailer of Christians a hateful self-righteous religious zealot that had murdered, had been, he was holding the clothes of the men who stoned the first martyr of the church, Stephen. He was there. And so they had heard about this man. But when he addresses the Romans, look at his transformation. This is truly remarkable. Don't have time to go through it, but look what it is. He expresses a deep gratitude, he commends these. Gentiles they were unclean in the Jewish world he encourages the daylights out of him he says I want you to encourage me as well he offers prayers for them he's eager to visit them he expresses deep humility and and a sense of uh, of indebtedness to people that he calls all kinds Gentiles, barbarians wise and foolish If you read 8 through 15, you see that this is not the same man that got knocked off his donkey on the way to Damascus. This is a different man. A man whose heart has been transformed. And everybody in the known world had heard of his evil. And now everybody in the known world was seeing his sacrifice for the very people he despised. What does that say to us, folks? What does it say? How could we, how can we in this room despise anybody if you really know who you are? Anybody. I don't care who they are. In fact, Christians should have embedded in their soul the idea that anybody and everybody's better than me, morally better than me. No matter what their religion, they're still better than me. I needed needed a Savior to come and die. for. I needed somebody to come deal with my sin because I couldn't do it. I have nothing in my hand to bring simply to what? Thy cross I cling. Naked I come with nothing. And yet... The church has been rife with self-righteousness and self-justification no better than in the world. And here the Apostle Paul, he's not even, uh, barely a dozen verses into this letter and he's already laying the groundwork for the majesty of his teaching later which is all based on the reality of this gospel, this good news. Jesus came, he is the king, but the king died for you to deal with the enemy of your soul because Rome was easy. Do you get it? All Jesus would have had to do, would he, he could have just let his nose twitch and blink twice. Oh, the old ones will get it. He could, he could have wiggled in your nose and blinked twice. Rome would have been gone. No problem. That would have been Easy. But to deal with your sin and mine? Well, that's no easy. That's not easy. And no nothing easy about that. That was brutal. Beyond brutal. In fact, we can't even imagine the brutality and the horror. Not of the physical wounds. But of hanging there alone with nobody. Not even his father. No one. Whatever mystery is behind all that, I don't know how all that worked. but whatever it was, it was so agonizing that John Calvin later said that he was in hell on that cross. That that's where he was those hours on the cross. He was in hell up there. He didn't go to hell when he died. He was already there. Are we crazy not to see it? Not to embrace it. The Apostle Paul, he he is loading his guns. He's filling the magazine because he's going to just spray everybody with this truth to transform us. So there's life transformation. And finally... The theme of the whole book is 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and the Greek, for in the gospel, the righteousness or the right relationship getting us back into an accepted position before God where our sins have been dealt with, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, there's nothing else that is to be moving us our life force is grounded in the person and work of Jesus. That's why we say here at Christ the King, Jesus for you, Jesus as you, Jesus in you, and Jesus through you. It's all about Him. Let me finish with this. Um, some of you know who uh, Jack Miller, I know Dave uh, and, and uh, uh, Jim will remember uh, Dr. Jack Miller at Westminster Seminary. Jack Miller was famous for saying, uh, you need to preach the gospel to yourselves every day. Every day you need to preach the gospel to yourself, especially if you're a believer Jerry Bridges, who was uh, uh, the head of the Navigators, very renowned uh, scholar and pastor and, and, and leader of the church, the Navigators had this, this diagram, and I wish I could draw. I love to draw, and I don't know. I don't have my board, but imagine a, imagine a line with birth, line, and death. Okay? And Jerry Bridges would teach his his navigators the idea that the most important day in a person's life is the day of their conversion. So when you take, and we do this in the journey, by the way, those of you guys have been in the journey know that we have that same chart and we do all this stuff. You you your life, then Jesus, cross, and then after that. And so Jerry Bridges for years taught that before you become a Christian, you need the gospel. And after you become a Christian, you need what? What? Discipleship. In other words, the gospel was to get you there. Discipleship was to get you on the other side. To grow and to become, you know, the great saints that we all are now. And then he met Jack Miller, and Jack Miller said, boy, that's a terrible, that's a terrible thing. You know, you're, you're preaching uh, salvation by merit. What? You're teaching salvation by merit. Of course, Jerry Bridges was humble, and so he said, well, explain it to me. Dr. Miller and Jack Miller said, every day of your life, the only thing that is going to get you through is not your discipleship. (sighs) It's not about your discipleship. Disciple, as important as it is, it's not about that. It's about the gospel. You need the gospel before. You need the gospel after. You need the gospel the day you close your eyes in death. You need the gospel all along. In fact, the the gospel is the only thing that will energize your discipleship. Listen, if you get them backwards, you don't have Christianity anymore. you got something else. And if you want that, go get it but I've already failed for 67 years. I've been a failure, so I don't want to go get that. I want to run to Jesus. My goodness. Who do we think we are? I'm going to make it by discipleship. No, you're going to make it by the gospel, and you will become a disciple, and that will change everything. And as Dawson told us last week, who you are determines what you do. And listen to this, folks. The Apostle Paul is going to spend 11 chapters telling you who you are. And then in chapter 12, after he has just filled you to bursting with the reality of who you are and what Jesus has done for you, then in verse 1 of chapter 12, he's going to say, Now, therefore, because of all this, put your life on the altar. Put yourself to death. For Him. This is, look. Now you can do it. Now you can live for Him. Not for merit's sake, but for Christ's sake. To honor Him, to glorify the name of this one, this glorious one. Thank God for Jerry Bridges and Jack Miller. Discipleship, Dr. Miller said this, Discipleship and the gospel belong together because the gospel must provide the grace that energizes our discipleship. Will you trust this great God who did this for you? Will you put your life into his hands? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, incredibly grateful as we open this magnificent letter that Paul wrote to the people in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles, and we ask that you would have mercy on us, help us, open our ears to the reality of how much you truly have loved us and what you've done for us in the person. We could never pay you back. We don't have any means of paying you back. And we should rejoice in that that you love us that well and so fully that you would give your Son and that we can follow this one, our Lord, our Savior. And in a moment, Father, we're going to partake of his body and blood as a symbol, a sign, and a seal of your great love for us. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.